0: Years ago, a friend called me up and said, my daughter Jess is dating a non-Christian, and she's doubting her faith. Can you spend some time talking to her? And I said, well, if she wants to meet me, I'd be happy to. I'm not going to force myself on talking to somebody who doesn't want to talk to me. And he said, oh, she said, oh, no, she's willing. She, uh, We just don't have the answers for her, and I'd like you to talk to her. So turns out she'd just gotten out of the army. She'd been there for four years, and it was just uh, gotten out and was dating this non-Christian guy and was wondering about Christianity. So at first she brought her boyfriend with her, and we got into um, which is wonderful. And we got into the, we met about four to five times. And I went over I go over a list of things like I, I talked about last time. I first proved that blind faith is dangerous, which got her boyfriend. who was an atheist on my side because he agreed with me, um, and then I proved that God exists without the Bible which is what I did this morning. So if you guys want to listen to that, so basically proving God exists without using the Bible, using science and the Big Bang Theory and things like that. Um, And then I proved that the New Testament, the New Testament Bible that we have is accurate. And by the fourth meeting, the boyfriend stopped coming. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the fourth meeting was where I did the sermon, the the equivalent of the sermon I did last time, which is proving Jesus Christ really rose from the dead using science and uh, history. And again, that's online, too, for you guys. But uh, so he stopped coming. I said, where's your boyfriend? She said, well, he's not coming. I said, why not? She says, well, he's not sure he wants to hear the rest of this. (laughs) But I want to hear the rest of it. And then the next meeting, I said, so how's it going with your boyfriend? She said, I broke up with him. So, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, really. (laughs) Her mom called me up and said, good job. No, she didn't. (laughs) Um, But once I've done, I was done with all that proof, you know, proving Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, she said, look, you know, I'm, I really realize I really do believe all this. This is, this is true. I believe it. But I have one huge objection. I said, I know what it is. She goes, what? She goes, evil. She goes, you're right. I said, she said, how did you know? I said, because I often get emails from atheists who've seen my website Right? And uh, they always send me emails about, well, how can there be a good God if there's so much evil in the world? Why doesn't God stop it? In fact, uh, today, as we know, is the 15th anniversary of the attack on the Twin Towers that we called 9 11. And one of the first things people were asking was, where was God on 9 11? And right after 9 11, a letter came out by, you don't need to read it, it's too small, I just want to show you it was there, by a, pa- a rabbi named Rabbi, rabbi uh, Kushner, right? And Kushner is an ultra-liberal rabbi. And his take on 9-11 was that God really was there in 9-11. And he says something like this, he says, God was there, you asked me where God was on 9-11, he was there holding up the buildings so that more people could leave the building. He was there so um, uh, making sure that not as many people got on the planes so that less people would die. He was delaying people to work so, because making their daughters sick so they getting, couldn't get to work. He was uh, um, delaying others in traffic so they couldn't make their flight. And he goes on and on like this, and I got rather irritated. I go, what? That sounds like a good answer. No, it's a horrible answer. And I wrote a little missive. I was kind of irritated. And I said, look, if this God is so great that he can delay people, why didn't he make the terrorists sick? (laughs) Right? If he could hold up a huge building, why didn't he hold back the plane? Right? Right? I mean, what kind of God is this? He goes, oh, oh, I'm holding up the building, but I can't think further to hold back the plane? I mean, come on. The only reason 9-11 happened is because God allowed it to happen. Not because God was up there going, oh, no, don't do that, please. don't, no, don't do that. He wasn't whimpering and asking about that. But this is a real problem because we have to ask, where was God on 9-11? And we have this issue of a good God and the problem of evil. I got this email a few years ago and says, Neil, one of the many reasons now I am an atheist or anti-Christian is because of the God of the Bible. The Christian God is very irrational and very evil. I can give you many examples, but we'll try to keep it short. God flooded the earth and killed everyone, i.e. murder, including children and babies. So how do you witness to somebody like this? How do we answer this question? This is a real question. I mean, you use apologetics to evangelize, right? But this question is coming up over and over again. And it is apologetics, but it's a philosophical thing. It's not a scientific thing. And it's also a very emotional thing. It's emotional for us, too. Why did God let my mother die? Why did God let my daughter die? I told you the story of my daughter last time, right? Why did God, um, why does God allow children to die? A few years ago, there was a bunch of children who died in an earthquake in Italy. In fact, there was a bunch that died recently in, that, in a similar earthquake. Why did you let six million Jews die in the Holocaust? Why didn't you stop? I mean, God could have stopped it. He could have killed Hitler. Why didn't my baby die? So I want to talk about this in two ways. First, I want to respond to the atheist. And then I want to respond to the Christian. So the first time, we'll focus on the atheist. And the atheist asked this question. How can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? But if you think about it, this is not the right question. The right question they're asking is, how can there be a good God when there's so much evil in the world, right? Because there could be. And I, <laughs> once I was, uh, we were in a, in a debate, and uh, we only had so much time for the debate. And I knew that this question of evil would come up. So I told the debate team, the kids, I was just helping them. I said, the first thing you want to do when the debate starts is you want to say, look, for the purposes of this thing, we're just going to prove that God exists. As far as you care, he may be an evil, angry, mean God, and he may be out to just kill you because he has fun with it. And I saw the other side take off like 10 pages from their debate and throw it away. <laughs> Because this was a the question they were going to ask. And I said, because I said, look, just phrase it as, we're just going to prove that a God exists, we don't have time for the evil side, and we don't think that's relevant, because if a, a God exists, then you're stuck with it. And then I had them throw something in the end that shows that God, and you'll hear some of that today. So here's the thing, here's what they're saying. Either there is evil in the world, so either he's unable to stop the evil, meaning he isn't God, right? He's unable, he's just not powerful enough to stop the evil, or he's unwilling to stop the me- evil, meaning that he isn't what? He isn't good, Right? So this is the problem they have. But here's the thing. The first thing you have to say when you have this problem, again, remember, I'm asking the atheists. I'm saying, look, Mr. Atheist, the first problem you have is that you have to accept something. What it is. If you say that God doesn't exist because there's evil, because he allows evil to exist, the first thing you're saying is what? Evil exists. Right? You've got to admit, because if there is no evil, then you have no argument. Okay, fine. And your argument is that evil exists so good God does not exist. But if you say evil exists, then you're saying what? You're saying there's a difference between good and evil, right? Well, obviously, because if evil, there was no difference between good and evil, then what is your objection? You have no objection. Now, if you say there's a difference between good and evil, what do you need? A standard. You read my slides, right? You need a standard to tell the difference between good and evil. How do you know that murdering babies is not good? What if it was baby Hitler? Right? You know, how do you know this standard? You've got to have a standard of good and evil. I mean, ever been to Starbucks and wonder why they start with a tall? Like, <laughs> tall what? I mean, tall means nothing unless it's compared to something. Okay, turns out they do have a short. Right? It's a dollar less, but they don't want to sell you that. Okay, because they don't make as much money on it. So, but the point is that you, it puzzled you. You go tall. Tall what? You've got to have a standard. What is normal? What is average? You know, I'm tall compared to Indians. But I'm not tall compared to the Sudanese that I grew up with. They're all seven foot tall, right? So it depends on what the standard is. So you've got to have a standard. Now, sometimes you'll catch people right here. You, you can say, well, are you saying that there's a standard, absolute standard of good and bad? Sometimes they'll say no. Because they realize you're about to trap them. But it doesn't make sense, it is. But because if there is no standard, then when you argue about evil and you say, I don't like evil, you're arguing about a preference. Let me give you an example. Without a standard, your moral values are mere preferences. That's like saying, I can't believe God exists because I don't like spicy chicken curry. I'm an Indian. It's a sin not to like spicy chicken curry. (laughs) But you really think it's a sin? That's just a preference, right? I mean, uh, you just happen to prefer a good bland hamburger. Right? Hitler prefers killing Jews. Prior to 1872, farmers preferred having slaves. God prefers to make you suffer. Who's to say they were or are wrong or bad or evil? It's merely a preference. In which case, your complaint is basically that you don't believe in God because you don't like that somebody else loves curry. Right? I mean, it makes no sense to say, I don't prefer evil, therefore God can't prefer evil. It's a preference. Unless you're saying there's a standard, you can't ask anything. So you can't, have a, uh, you can't say there's a difference between good and evil unless you have a standard. But now you have a problem. Because if you have a standard, what do you need? You need a standard giver. Well, if you have a standard giver, where does that standard come from? Well, one option is the standard giver is man. And anytime somebody says, other men create the standard, I ask, which man? Mother Teresa or her Hitler? And they go, no, no, not Hitler. Definitely, definitely not Hitler, right? I, we don't want Hitler. I go, well, why, why, why not Hitler? Why not Mother Teresa? And I, the way I phrase the question is I say this, look. Oh, somebody else they also say, what about society? They go, well, society, well, the problem is if they say, well, society determines the standard. You go, wait a minute, wait a minute, here's the problem with society. German society determined that Jews were not human. Why didn't that count as a standard? They go, well, no, no, I mean the whole world has to decide that. I go, that's, that's even worse for you. Because the whole world thought slavery was okay until the 1800s. Did that make slavery okay? No, 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 that's not right either. Now, some of them will argue, yes, that is, we decide what the standard is. But then you're going back to the preference. Right? They'll circle around and you go, no, you're back to your preference again. You like spicy chicken curry? I mean, I like spicy chicken curry, you don't, you're sick in the mind, in the head. Right? Some of you will get that later, but. <laughs> but here's the question I ask people: if there is no objective morality, why was Hitler wrong? And then, if there is an objective morality, why do you get to decide what it is and not Hitler? Right? So you're saying Hitler's wrong, but then you're saying I get to decide. Why do you get to decide or not Hitler? And the right answer is neither of us can decide what it is. We need an authority who is overall mankind to decide what that standard is. So to have an objective about this, you've got to have an authority, and it can't be Mother Teresa, it can't be Hitler, it can't be society, and it certainly can't be you, bucko. <laughs> so I had an atheist say, well, you know, the standard is actually our DNA. It's, it's, we evolved, our standard evolved, you know. And as the years passed, we evolved. That's why slavery was okay before, but our standards have evolved. I said, there's a problem with this. And the problem with this is called Scrabble. I talk about it in the 40 days in the book that we have out there. The problem is Scrabble. One morning, let's say you and I are playing Scrabble at your house. We're in high school. And we throw out the Scrabble board, and amazingly, by an incredible chance of nature, the letters spell out, take out the garbage. (laughs) And you immediately say, oh, I better take out the garbage. No, you don't. You say, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Are you morally obligated to take out the garbage? No, No, because it's a Scrabble game. It's an accident. It, It has no authority over you. Now, let's say the next morning, you wake up, and you haven't cleaned up the Scrabble board. And your mom, deciding to be creative, says, Jake, take out the garbage. Find Mom. Now, are you morally obligated to take out the garbage? Yes. yes. Why? Because Mom is a person and Mom has authority over you. If it said, take out the garbage, Timmy, you'd go, little brother Timmy, I'm not going to pay attention to him because he has no moral authority over you, right? So you can only be obligated to a moral standard if they are a person and if they have authority. Now, let's go back to our little slides flowchart here. Right? We're, we're saying that we can't be obligated to a thing, so it's not our DNA, but who has authority over all mankind, including Herr Hitler? The only person who could would be the creator of mankind. Well, here's the problem. That makes a standard giver God. But wait a second. You just said a good God does not exist. It's not exactly what you're trying to prove. So let's go back. If you say God does not exist, right? God does not, how does God exist? in so much evil in the world. Then let's work backwards. Okay, If God does not ex- exist, then a standard does not exist. The a standard does not exist, then there's no difference between good and evil. If there's no difference between good and evil, then there's no difference between there's, Evil does not exist. And your question becomes nothing. How can God exist when there's so much nothing in the world? You've just asked a circular question that makes no sense. Do you see? Let's go back and we'll look at this carefully. See, what then is your question? Let's look at this. In summary, you believe in a difference between good and evils. If so, there must be a standard between good and evil, which means there must be a moral law. But if there is a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that is who you're trying to disprove and not prove. If there is no moral law giver, there is no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What then is your question? <laughs> The atheist cannot ask the question unless he posits a God to begin. The question without a God has no answer, has no rational answer. So there must be other reasons why evil exists. And that's what we want to look at. And we we'll look at this as Christians. So both of these don't work. They're both are logically false. Okay. <clears throat> so your recognition of the presence of evil rather than disprove the existence of God actually proves the existence of a supreme moral standard giver. And we've agreed that it can't be mankind. Okay. But it's a valid question. Why does God allow pain in our lives? The Christians say, we know God exists, but yeah, our loved ones die, people suffer. Why? So why does God allow some people to suffer and others to not? What about other natural, natural disasters? What about death? So, let's go back. Let's do some background here. God can do anything. This is a question. Yes. I want you to be very careful in how you answer this question. He can't lie. Can God do anything? No, he can't lie, right? What else can't he do? Can he die? He can die as his human flesh can die, but he can't die, right? Uh, Can he sin? Can he stop being God? Can he make 1 plus 1 equal 3? No. God cannot do anything. He cannot sin. He cannot stop being God. He cannot do what is actually impossible. He cannot make a round square in 2D space. He cannot make one plus one equal three. He cannot be logical. He cannot be irrational. Why? Because logic and rationality are the very nature of God. He cannot stop being his own nature. I was once driving in a car with a friend of mine and I started explaining something and I said, you see, it's just logical. And he turned to me and he says, Neil, that is man's logic you're using. You need to use God's logic. It's different. And he turned to him and said, that's the most stupidest thing you've ever said to me in my life. (laughs) He said, what do you mean? I said, all logic is God's logic. It's either illogic, it's not logic, or it is logic. But if it's logic, it's God's logic. So I may be wrong, and my logic may be wrong, but if it is logical, it is God's logic. And he cannot stop being logical, because that is his very nature. In fact, mathematics, there are some things that we call transcendent facts. Mathematics is a transcendent thing, because you don't need a physical universe. One plus one is equal to two, even without a universe. Right? Um, a set theory, another transcendent fact. Some people argue beauty is a transcendent fact. Right? Symmetry is a transcendent fact. So all these things are... Things that God cannot violate. So, God cannot do what is actually impossible. So, therefore, it is possible that God is unable to create a world with free choices where nobody makes the free choice to sin. Think about that. God may not be able to make a world where you have the freedom to sin and you don't use it. Because it doesn't make sense to give you the freedom. It's illogical for God to create a world with free will where, secondly, it's illogical for God to create a world with free will where disobeying God had no consequence. It's not free will if God created a world where you were free to do anything you wanted, including disobey God, but when you disobeyed God, he would stop, you from, stop it from having any bad effects. So Let me break this down. One, if God's going to give you free will, you have to have free will. And if you're going to have free will, you've got to have the free will to disobey him. Right? It's like me saying, you can go anywhere you want in the building, but the doors are locked. No, I don't, can't go anywhere in the building, right? So if God says you can do anything you want, but you can't disobey me, well, then I can't do anything you want. Right, And also, it's illogical for God to create a world where disobeying God has no consequences. or no, uh, it has no consequences. Like For instance, I can say you can go anywhere in the building, but not into that room. Why? Well, I just don't want you to go to that room. Why? Because I don't feel like it. That's illogical. When God tells you not to do something, it's because it has a bad consequence. Right? God doesn't tell, if you, if you look at every single law in the Bible, because there's a reason why you shouldn't do it. It kills someone, hurts someone, so causes disease. Right? There's no law in the Bible. It's like saying, well, that stop sign's there. Why is the stop sign there? Oh, because the city fathers didn't want us to have fun while we were driving. <laughs> no, the stop sign's there so you don't kill anybody. Right? So in the same way, God's not going to give us a stop sign unless it has a meaning. So if there's a meaning, that means there's a consequence of you disobeying God that has things. Now, let's go to the next step. What if God were to say, look, there's a stop sign there, but every time you run the stop sign, I'll make sure nobody's in the intersection. Well, then why have a stop sign? Right? If God was going to stop you every time you did something bad, then why have a rule against doing something bad? It's like me saying to my daughter, don't stick the fork in the socket. But you know what? Even if you did stick the fork in the socket, it would turn off automatically. Well, then why have a rule against that? Just go ahead and stick the fork in the socket. It'll reset and go back again. Right? I mean, I don't want her to do it because if every single socket in the entire world had a reset switch, she would not need to learn that. So the only reason God gives us rules is A... Because we have the freedom to disobey them. B, because they are a reason why we should not do them because it hurts others or other people. And C, because he is not going to step in to stop that effect. Now, so let's go one step further. If God were always to stop you from being able to hurt others, would the law have any purpose? We, why ask somebody not to do something they cannot do anyway? The only reason you ask someone not to do something is that they could do it and it had bad consequences. So how can God give mankind free will to rebel against them if that free will had no real consequences? It's illogical. And God is not logic. Is God, if God is going to give mankind free will, it must have be that free will allows us to choose actions with bad consequences. Okay, then you go... Back. So therefore, free will must involve the pain, involve the freedom to bring pain to ourselves and our, our choice, others. Your choices are: no one has free will and no one suffers. Everyone has free will and suffering exists, but there's a way to stop the suffering. Robots or free men? What do you want? Now, the question then is: why doesn't God protect the innocent or act supernaturally to protect good people? I mean, at least God could occasionally step in. And who says he doesn't? But if you think about it, oh, by the way, the law is, we talk about the law being there for a purpose. Let me go over this because this is important. There are, there are three sources of the law that I talk about. One, there's the revealed law. This is the law that's in the Bible, right? God has revealed it to us. Two, there's the conscience law. It's the self-evident law. You, you know that something is bad because God has put that in you. And three, there's what we call the, the laws of nature, the discovered law. The way I teach it to my daughter is the revealed law. And I said to my daughter, look, the reveal law is dad telling you don't run across the street because you'll get hit by a car. That's the best way to learn it. The second way is you look at the cars running across the street. This is the conscience law. And you go, you know what? If I cross the street, I could get hit. That's the second best way to learn something. It's a bit tougher, but you've got to figure it out. The third way is what we call the "awi" Law. <laughs> you run across the street, you get hit, and you ain't going to do that no more. Right? Um, and, and this is what most of us have done. We've done the discovered law. We, over time, we look at things and go, well, people have been doing that, and they've been getting hurt, and they've been getting killed. And so there are three ways to discover it. We want to figure it out the first way. Right? So, why doesn't God always intervene for the innocent? Well, with free agents, it's not incumbent on God to intervene. Think about that. If God were to stop evil from being acted out, then the free agent is not truly free. Think of your kids at home. You are there to stop them. They do not have free will, right? So, to further his purposes, God also does this because he wants to further his purpose, like the blind man Joseph remember Joseph right? He gets kidnapped, he gets put in, in, uh, in a, in a, in a sorry in a, in a pit, and he gets sold as slavery and God, joseph God uses this for, for greatness, so if God had stopped Joseph from being kidnapped, not kidnapped, being uh, uh, thrown into the well by his brothers and sold into slavery by his brothers, then what would have happened? So God uses these things. The blind man, remember Jesus says, the, the, Pharisee, the, the disciples say, why was this man blind? And Jesus says, so that God's glory can be revealed. So there are many reasons why God will act and there are many reasons why God will wait to act. And of course, Jesus is the supreme example. Okay, and then for you, how many times has God had to do something in your life to get you to move and do something else? Right? there are many reasons why God doesn't always interfere but here's the other thing in the Bible we look at the Bible and go oh there's supernatural miracles all over but if you average it out there's probably less than one supernatural miracle every three years okay and usually they don't happen every three years they cluster around some special event so in the Bible God usually intervenes supernaturally in a clearer way just before he does something very big and very critical to his long term plans so remember this yeah you're praying for a miracle Yes, God can heal them, and yes, God does heal them, but God doesn't have to heal them. It's not incumbent upon him to heal it, if his plans are far greater than what you're looking at right now. Does that make sense? Okay, you go, well, Neil, yeah, that's fine. What about natural disasters? Well, take the tsunami, for instance. Here's an interesting thing uh, about tsunamis and natural disasters. If you think of the way the world is, a great, a great book by Hugh Ross, he talks about why the world is the way it is. And he talks about all these things that have to happen for the world to be the way it is, right? And it's an amazing book. I got to, the name slips me by, but you go look up for Hugh Ross, and I think it's called Why the. Why the universe is the way it is, and he talks about how you, there are certain things that we need to have for modern civilization that couldn't have happened, couldn't be there unless it happened ages ago, and is inherent in the way the world is designed. But look at lateral rise. It is possible that God cannot create a habitable world with wind, which we need, but no volcanoes or earthquakes. Why? Because if you have wind and you don't have earthquakes and volcanoes, get what? Gets, Guess what happens with wind? You get erosion. And what happens is all the land would be rolled below the level of the sea. Right? Similarly similarly for hurricanes, no temperature equalization. Uh, You need temperature equalization. Floods, no nutrients are replenished in our soil. So there are many good reasons for all these things to take place. You go, wait a minute, but what about slow floods? Well, that violates physical laws. You know, what about slow earthquakes? That also violates physical laws. What about weak hurricanes? You can't make a weak hurricane. Right? What about gentle breezes that equalize it? No, it doesn't work. You know, there are many climatologists that will tell you that. They'll also tell you a lot of other stuff that doesn't, isn't true, but never mind. We won't go into global warming at this point. Um, but uh, the real, what about famines? The reality is there is no famine that has ever occurred that wasn't man-made or man-preventable. And so we keep going that. I mean, you start going down the list. What about diseases? Many diseases are actually man-preventable. Other diseases are man-curable. If we spend our time fighting the disease instead of fighting each other, we would actually do a lot of good, right? Imagine all the resources that were lost in World War II, right? But there were evil men. We had to stop them first before we could go ahead with it. So the reality is man causes evil. The evil any one person does will affect others, your parents, Adam, Hitler, right? The reality is the only way to stop a person from doing evil is to destroy him or restrain him. Now think about this. Should Hitler have been killed by God? And if Hitler were to be killed by God, who else should have been killed by God? Let's go down the line. How about Goebbels, okay? How about going down the line, further down? Eventually you realize that if God were to start eliminating all free agents who have sinful desires, he would have to eliminate me and you as well. Where do you want God to draw the line? Oh, just draw at Hitler. But doesn't Hitler have the free will to do bad things? Well, 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 at least stop the pain, God. Why don't you at least stop the pain? Why should there be so much pain? So I want to introduce you to a man, uh, give you an interview with a man who feels no pain. This is a man suffering from a disease called leprosy. Not as common anymore because we have found drugs that stop it. But look what he says. He says, leprosy doesn't eat away your skin. It just desensitizes it, Right? Your, your, skin doesn't, your, your fingers don't drop off because you have leprosy. They drop off because you can't feel them and then you hit them or you get damaged and then they drop off, right? The problem is I feel no pain in my extremities. So by the time I realize my fingers or legs are in danger, it's too late and the damage is already done, they fall off due to cell damage. I need pain to know that I'm in danger. You are lucky that you feel pain. It protects you. <laughs> Yeah, but come on, why would pain have to be painful? What about other warnings? Why don't you warn us some other way, God, right? Like pleasant warnings, yeah. Like uh, then we wouldn't stop drinking or doing drugs. Hey, here's a, a sign on the cigarette box. Cigarettes kill. Yeah, that's a nice warning. It doesn't work, does it? Well, not as well, right? Uh, what about mental knowledge about danger? Well, we know it. We ignore it. Speeding, drinking, driving, dating non-Christians. We know the dangers. <laughs> What about a different sensation? We just ignore it just like others. Pain has to hurt or it will not work. You see the dilemma you're putting God in? You're trying to give him an impossible task and saying, well, God, why didn't you do it this way? Well, it's a good reason why it is not that way. So pain and suffering have a purpose. To protect us. To refine us. To humble us. To perfect us. To teach us. To allow us to understand and minister to others. You know, what's interesting about this is for every person who's a non-Christian, that loses a loved one. There's a Christian usually that has lost a loved one and can minister to them. God has created this in a way that he can use our pain to glorify himself and reach out to others who don't understand that. And to glorify God and the blind man. And to prove a point. And here's what's very important. Remember last time, I, I one of my important points of last time was the disciples died. They'd seen Jesus rising from the dead. One of the disciples had seen Jesus rise from the dead and they all became filthy rich and lived happy lives. And you go, well, why should I believe them? They made money off this deal. But all of them suffered terribly tortured, persecuted, scared, chased, <clears throat> crucified, flayed alive, speared. Why? Because their testimony had to stand the time. They said, I don't care what you do to me. I know Jesus physically rose from the dead, and I touched him, I saw him, I ate with him. And I put my fingers in those holes. And if it doesn't happen to the best of them, why should it happen to the worst of them? Me. But God didn't just sit there and say, I'm going to create this world where you're going to suffer. He said, I am going to suffer with you. He came to earth, he shared in our sorrows. He was called the man of sorrows. He suffered rejection, injustice, abuse, physical torment, and death. He came along our side. God is suffering in our pain with you and with us and for us. See, God, desiring to be loved by free agents, gave Adam free will, knowing fully well that Adam's choice would create pain in the world. But God cannot do that which is impossible. He desired our love, and love has to be given freely. And he said, I know you will choose wrongly, and I know you will suffer so I will also suffer alongside you but in my suffering I will redeem you and through my debt I, debt, I will forgive you and by my stripes you will be healed. I was um, talking to a group of engineers once I'm an engineer during the day <clears throat> was on a project and there was about six or eight of us and we decided to take a break and go to lunch so we're sitting there in a Chinese restaurant you know the circular tables the thing that spins in the middle and um, there was a guy visiting from Italy who was um, working on the project with us and he sat down I sat down next to him and a guy who knows me well said oh the atheist and the pastor sitting next to each other and the Italian guy who was the atheist said oh you're a pastor and he really did have that accent I'm not kidding I said, no, I'm not really a pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I teach apologetics. He goes, you know, he didn't know what that was, and I didn't take the time to explain it. I thought that would be the end of it. He says, let me tell you why I'm not a Christian. <laughs> or I should say, let me tell you why I'm not a Christian. <laughs> he said, uh, last week in Italy, 50 children died. You tell me where God was. What, what happened to them? What? He said, what do you think of that? And, I'm like, and I said, um, let me ask you this. If there is a God, where did those children go when they died? Long silence. Everybody at the table stopped chewing. <laughs> and he's sitting there frozen with a fork on his way right to his mouth and he on the fork and he starts thinking he starts thinking and I'm like I'm not going to interfere right at this point (laughs) because when somebody's thinking about things like that they got to think and that's a that's a trouble with us you know we got we got to let them think right give them space let them think you'll have plenty of time to talk later and everybody it's awkward right (laughs) looking at him finally says and remember the question is where do those children go if there is a God Finally he says, with a God? I said, that's right. No, I didn't say that. I said, that's right. I said, if there is a God, then they went to be with God. Death is not this horrible thing. Death is not the end game. There's another long pause. He looked at me and says, I understand. And we all went back to eating. <laughs> Now, we became good friends. I, I wish I could say I led him to Christ, but now he, he flew to Italy two days later, so I, I sent emails back and forth, and then I lost touch with him. But that had never happened before, so we want to put death in perspective. What is death? Remember, I told this the last hour, if you were in here, I told everybody, you don't have a soul. And they go, what? No, you don't have a soul. Why? Because you are a soul. You have a body. Right? You have a body. This, this is not you. This is the car that you are driving and when you get out of the car the car is dead but you're not dead. And in the last hour we talked about multidimensionality and we talked about how there are multiple dimensions and all that stuff. And I'll talk about it in just a second. But if you don't have a soul, then guess what? God never killed you. He doesn't kill kids. Kids don't die, only bodies do. You will never cease to exist once you're born. I told that to my atheist friend. I said, look, you will not die. God help you. You will not die. You will live forever either with him or without him. And that scares the hell out of me. And he said... I appreciate your concern. See, physical death is merely a movement from one plane into another after discarding our body. In God's extra-dimensional existence, death is similar to moving from one continent to another. That you don't cease to exist. You just go somewhere else in another dimension. Death is a transition from a limited three-dimensional plane to a multi-dimensional plane. Let me give you a quick example. The scientific evidence is, for brief moments after the Big Bang, we can calculate there were ten dimensions, if not more. These disappear to our future senses after ten to the minus three, 3 seconds. Well, you have ten dimensions. Oh, wow. Science says that ten. Yeah. Well, we know of these three dimensions, height, length, and width. I'm going to go this really fast, because we did it in great detail in the last hour. So what else is there? Well, the fourth dimension is time, right? Now, you go, okay, well, so what if there was a fourth spatial dimension? That's not time, but a space dimension, because the, the science says there are at least six spatial dimensions. Well, let's look at a brief example here. Here is a cube, It's a three dimensional cube. But a two dimensional creature cannot, that lives on a piece of paper or a flat surface, can't understand what three dimensions are, right? So what they're going to do is, what we're going to do is, we're going to unfold the cube so they can see what the cube is unfolded. So this becomes this in two dimensions, unfolded. Well, what if there was a four dimensional cube? What would it look like, right? Uh, Well, if there was a four dimensional cube, we would have to unfold it. So let's see if we can understand how to get there. So here is a square, right? It's a two-dimensional cube. Everybody with me? Right, so it has two dimensions, and it has how many sides does the square have? Four sides, it unfolds to this, right? Each side is a line. Now let's take a three-dimensional cube, which is what we know as a cube. That's three-dimensional, it has six sides, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, and each side is a square. So what does a four-dimensional cube look like? Well, a four-dimensional cube is a hypercube, or a tesseract. It's four-dimensional, and It has, so this, we had four, six, what is this number going to be? Eight, right? And each of this, we had lines here, squares here, what is this going to be? Cubes. So a hypercube will have eight cubes when we unfold it. So let's unfold a hypercube, and this is what you get. Now, how does it fold back up together? We have no idea. I, it just doesn't happen, right? Now, I, I don't. last time this didn't work, so let's see if it works this time. Okay, it does, wow. Okay, so you see this cube up here? If you missed this, it didn't work the last hour. So if you see this cube up here, you'll notice that it's drawn with perspective. So this side is really the same as this side, right? So when I rotate this cube into our space, we see this side, oh, that's a square. Oh, that's a square. Oh, that's a square, right? You keep rotating it. So if I were to take a hyperscube in four-dimensional space and rotate it into our space... I'm not seeing the whole cube, I'm seeing like the shadow of the cube in our space. Every time I rotated that cube into our space, I should see a cube. So here's a hypercube rotated into three-dimensional space. There's a cube, I rotate it, there is a cube, I rotate it, and see that inside cube? It's going to come out and become another cube, right, so this, this is how, but we have no idea how it actually looks in four-dimensional space. Now. What does this all mean? Well, it means quite simply this. How did Jesus get into the locked upper room? Right? In a two-dimensional space, what's a line? I mean, what's a wall? A wall is a line, right? What is a room in two-dimensional space? It's a square. And for you to get into that square in two-dimensional space, you'd have to put a door in that square and open and go in. Otherwise, once that door was locked, you couldn't get into that room. But I, as a three-dimensional key- creature, can just hop into the room over the third dimension that you can't see. So how did Jesus get into the upper room? If he's a multi-dimensional creature, he just hops into the room. He steps over it. right? And this is nothing new. This has been going on for years, right? So how about angels? Demons, they intersect our plane and they leave our plane, right? When you see some, somebody appear, they would appear and then they disappear as they intersect our plane. Just like a two-dimensional creature, like I was touching this plane, a two-dimensional creature would think that my finger was me. But it isn't really me. And then when I did this, they'd say, oh, there are three of you. But it isn't really me. And I slide it up here and they'll say, oh, well, now you've all merged together. But none of it is really me. It's just a portion of me. So when we have multi-dimensional creatures come into us, they'll look like they're flying because they're out there. And we'll see portions of them as they shimmer and come through our plane and intersect it. And there's a lot more. If you go online and look at three-dimensional, uh, four-dimensional hypercubes, hyperspheres, it's a lot of fun stuff. Um, but here's the other thing. Where is heaven and hell? Other dimensions? Most probably, right? Uh, a soul that can't be measured. You know, was, uh, There was a time when they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to measure somebody just before they die and then measure them after they die and see if there's a difference. Well, of course there's no difference. It's a multidimensional being, right? You can't measure multidimensional beings, right? Uh, this is a scientific explanation for the supernatural, by the way. The natural is 3D plus time. The supernatural is the other six dimensions. Science actually claims that there is a supernatural. Well, you go, well, that's all science fiction. No, it isn't, because we just built the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland to send a particle into that fifth dimension. So... And by the way, I talk about this in this book. I shouldn't show you this book because I think we're out of them. (laughs) And this is the book for So what is death? Death is a movement from the physical and temporal short-term dimensions of man into the spiritual and eternal long-term dimensions of God. Death to you is merely a permanent movement to God's dimension. You don't die. You just move there. And remember what I said, it's more colors, more sounds, more taste. I did this last time I was here. I said, when my daughter died, my older daughter asked, Dad, what's it like... When you die, it's like falling asleep. And at first I said yes. And then I thought, no, because in the multidimensional sphere, you have more colors. So you now see with three dimensions. Imagine the number of colors you see in ten dimensions. You listen to music now with three dimensions. Imagine music in ten dimensions. You eat pizza now with three dimensions. Imagine pizza in ten dimensions. Or women, chocolate in ten dimensions. All right? Relationships, we have three-dimensional relationships, four-dimensional relationships in time, but think of a ten-dimensional relationship. So I turned to her, I said, honey, no, dying is not like falling asleep, it's like waking up. We are not allowed to kill people. We're not allowed to move them, it's called kidnapping, to take somebody against their will and put them somewhere else, right? unless you're their parent. But God, who is the parent, is allowed to transport someone from one dimension into his presence. Thus the physical death of anybody, I'm not saying that parents can kill kids, thus the physical death of anybody is not an example of an evil action by God. Does that make sense? You can't say, well, God, you murdered these babies. No! He said, I just moved them, in fact, I moved them from a horrible, plain, dull, black and white existence into this wonderful, colorful existence in my presence. And when the atheist says, I understand, he has glimpsed some of that. We need to wrap up here. If you were here uh, I think it was a month ago, when I talked about your daughter, you understand that. I, I want to talk about my mom briefly. In July of 2014, we buried my mom. She was 79 years old. She was always a healthy eater. Um, but she had, she needed a quadruple bypass. I claim because she ate more carbs than meat. I eat meat as much as I can. And it's supposed to be better for you. But she came out of that quadruple bypass with flying colors. And she was walking and talking, and everything was fine. Until about a a week after surgery, we suddenly got an emergency call that she had been rushed into the emergency room for surgery because her organs had been shutting down. Somehow, something had gotten dislodged and was shutting down all her system. A few days later, the doctors all took us in the room. And I've seen this before. Every time the doctor takes you in the room, it's a bad thing, right? I mean, I had that with my daughter, and I saw it with my mom. And I said, I know what's coming. And they sat us all down, and they said, look, we don't think there's much hope. And my dad... See, we grew up in the Middle East. And uh, at one point, there was a place... Where there was a, a, a country, We were in Sudan, South Sudan, and there weren't any good schools. So my mom would go to India with the kids, and my dad would stay in Sudan... And so, and he would come on vacation. And so he says, it's okay. We're not afraid of death. She'll just go on ahead and I'll come there on vacation. And a day later she went to be with her Lord and my Lord and to play with my daughter Caroline in a place with lots of colors and lots of sounds. Revelation 21, 1-4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old things have passed away. You see, your primary purpose on earth is to glorify God. And you will glorify God in heaven. By the way, you're not going to live in heaven. Just get your theology right. You're going to live on the new earth. You go to heaven for a short while until the new earth is made, and then you come to the new earth. But the question is, is there free will in heaven? Is there free will on earth? I mean, if you don't have free will, if you have free will here, won't you need free will there? I mean, are we all robots in heaven? How how does God stop that? How How does God prevent you from sinning in heaven? Well, the first thing is, we won't have a sin nature. God has taken that out of us. But, but here's the other question is, we won't, and our sin nature will allow us not to want to do it. Like for instance, if I had a pen in my arm, like I have no real desire to poke into my eye. Right? I, I know what that yields, right? I have no great desire to fool around on my wife, having an adulterous relation. I know what that results, right? I, I, there are all these things that I know I shouldn't do and I have no desire to do them. So heaven is like that. But here's another reason. How do I get to the point where I don't have that desire? And so this is the real answer to why there is suffering. Remember, Jess, right? We're in this conversation and, and I go through this. And I say, Jess, and, and it strikes me that I said, Jess, let me ask you this. I said, did you go to boot camp? Because of course I went to boot camp. You can't get into the army without that. I said, why did you go to boot camp? She said, so I could be honed, so I could be refined, so I could be ready to do the real work that the army wanted me to do. A boot camp is not the real work, it's a training. It separates those who would stay loyal and true from those who would bail. It helps separate those who would never ever quit, regardless of circumstances, from those who would just give it lip service. Now, boot camp is not perfect, but it gives you an idea. And I said to her, I said, yes, was it easy? And she laughed in my face. She said, of course it wasn't easy. And then I said, Well, did you get hurt in boot camp? She said, Did I get hurt in boot camp? And she started showing me scars. Oh, well, I got this when I was doing this. I was this when I got scratched by the barbed wire. And she starts, and I said, Jess, let me ask you a question. And I said, Given all those scars and experiences that did not kill you or maim you, would you give them up? And she's looked at me and she said, Are you kidding? This is my badge. This is my branding. I earn these. So folks, this is boot camp. Go earn your branding. God bless you.